Morning, church. Hello, church. Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Excited to open God's Word with you. Uh, we are in 1 Timothy again. We're going to finish up a portion of chapter 1. Turn with me there in your copy of the scripture. 1 Timothy. Uh, the song we just sang sets us up well. I'm fighting a battle that you've already run. I want to ask us, how did we do last week in the fight? How did we do? And I want to start this morning with some U.S. history, which I'm hoping will help us to, to apply our passage. On June 6, 1944, 79 years ago this summer, Allied forces launched the greatest amphibious invasion the world had ever seen. The historic D-Day invasion of Normandy, France was the turning point in World War II, which re resulted eventually in the liberation of Western Europe from the grip of Nazi uh, Germany. The Normandy invasion took two years to plan and involved astronomical, an astronomical number of soldiers. 160,000 Allied soldiers um, it was, was required to liberate Western Europe uh, mostly American and British troops, but also Canadian forces, French forces, 7,000 ships and landing craft, 10,500 aircraft, and then the final number is not in pounds, but in tons, 450,000 tons of ammunition during the D-Day invasion. Hollywood has tried to capture the experience of those who fought in this invasion with Movies like The Longest Day, Saving Private Ryan, television shows like Band of Brothers. Imagine the courage required to step off those transports. Stepping off into the surf while loaded down with packs of ammunition and supplies and only to discover once you've stepped off that submerged beneath the water is barbed wire mined stakes, metal tripods standing in your way, and then machine gun fire raining down on your head. I thought about showing a clip from some of these well-known movies this morning. None of the clips I looked at were appropriate for Sunday morning fair. Call me old or nostalgic, but each year that passes, I am more appreciative of the freedoms preserved and secured by our American military forces. 4,000 Allied soldiers gave their lives that day. And then another 70,000 soldiers died securing Western Europe, moving into France and liberating Western Europe, 70,000. If those soldiers had not been willing to fight, I'm fighting the battle, that you've already won. If those soldiers had not been willing to fight, it's hard to even imagine what our global reality would be like this morning. And I raise the history of the D-Day invasion because we have just celebrated this past week our liberties as a nation with the July 4th holiday. Those liberties first secured in the year 1776 
but many, many have fought over the last 247 years in order to preserve those liberties. And in today's passage, Paul writes to Timothy that he should fight. We're fight, we sing, we're fighting a battle that you've already won. You've secured the victory, the victories are ours, but we're fighting. How are you doing at fighting? Admittedly, the fighting that Paul's encouraging us to do is not like modern warfare, but it is no less physical. It's no less physical it has real combatants, real casualties, and real consequences, eternal consequences. Here are this morning's verses, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18, 19, and 20. Paul writes, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with prophecies once made about you. So that by recalling those prophecies, by recalling them, you might fight the battle well. Holding on to faith and a good conscience. How's your conscience? What happened last week? How did it impact your conscience? Did you hold on to the faith well? Fighting helps our conscience. He says, holding on to the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. Their, their faith has run aground. They're not making any progress. Among them, and then he calls them out, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've, no small matter, handed over to Satan to be taught not to blasphemy. If you're an underliner and you've got your copy of God's Word open, underline, fight the battle well. I want to focus on that. That's my encouragement this morning, that we would fight the battle well. I want to take Paul's encouragement and make it ours. Paul's to Timothy, let's make it ours. We all want to fight the battle well. I know we want to fight the battle well. We got up, we got to church this morning, we gathered as a community, we didn't go for a long bike ride, right? We're with the people of God locally here gathered, we're singing loudly, right? Those are actually, that, those are battle plans, those are strategies for fighting well. We, I know we want to fight the battle well, you're gathered here this morning. I know we want to fight the battle well because we want to enjoy the liberties that are ours in Christ. Are you enjoying the liberties that are yours in Christ? Are you free? Later in chapter 6, same little letter that, uh, to Timothy, 1 Timothy, Paul urges him to fight again. He says, fight the, he says, fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy 6.12. I wonder what he had in mind, Paul had in mind, when he tells Timothy to fight. I wonder what we have in mind when we hear those words, that we're to fight the battle well. 21 centuries later now, thereabouts, what do we picture in our mind's eye when we think we need to fight? These are important questions to ask and answer, to wrestle with, because there is a direct correlation between 
the national freedoms that we enjoy as U.S. citizens and the willingness of men and women to fight to secure and preserve those freedoms. It's a direct. It's not an indirect. It's, not, it's, a, it's, causal, it's causal. People fight to preserve our freedoms as U.S. citizens. I was at the 4th of July parade. I love a good parade. And uh, the parade always starts with the folks you know, carrying the flag and military men carrying the, and women carrying the flag. Everybody appropriately stands and applauds their service. There is a direct correlation between our willingness to fight as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and enjoying the liberties that are ours in Christ. How are you doing at fighting? Sadly, I'm afraid that many don't see the need to fight in a life of faith. Let's be honest, most people don't like to fight. I understand that, but the world in which we live is described as a battlefield. A place in which spiritual forces of evil it's uh, Ephesians 6.12. Spiritual forces of evil are attacking the people of God in order to undermine the purposes of God in our lives individually, collectively, the world. His, his work of redemption is opposed by spiritual forces of evil. We have an enemy who has a name, the devil, who's scheming, looking to devour, consume us, we read in Scripture. We must fight over and over again. Warfare is a repeated motif within Scripture. The Old Testament's filled with warfare. King David sang songs with lyrics that said, You trained my hands for war, Psalm 144, Psalm 18. In the New Testament, Paul describes Christians as soldiers. Book of Philemon, verse 2. Paul's exact invitation in his second letter to Pastor Timothy, chapter 2 of that letter, is to join him in suffering. Paul's inviting Timothy, join me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul gives a detailed description of the armor of God that we're to be wearing as we make our way through our days. Armor that has boots, and a belt, and a breastplate, and a shield, and a helmet, and a sword. Sometimes I, I'm, I worry that we're walking around without any armor in a world that's at war. And of course, the Bible describes the close of history as an enormous cosmic battle in a place called Armageddon, Revelation chapter 16, at which time God will once and for all defeat evil. I'm fighting a battle, the end of which I know you've already won. But make no mistake, we're fighting. So the good news is there's a coming a day, according to the prophet Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 of his prophecy in which humanity will no longer have to fight. The prophet says they will then beat their swords into plowshares. 
Time's coming when nations will no longer fight against nations. Even more importantly, a time is coming when the spiritual forces of evil in the world will be subdued. But until that time, warfare is the reality of our planet, both physically and spiritually. War is the reality of our planet because there are spiritual forces in rebellion against God. And humanity, unfortunately, joined that rebellion through disobedience in the Garden of Eden. So while we wait for that day when God will secure peace once and for all, we now live on a battlefield. Let's look at verse 18 a little more closely. It's on the screen again. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command. You could circle the word command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you might fight the battle well. For context, this command he's referencing, I'm giving you this command, he's referencing, it it occurs earlier in chapter one. In fact, just if you've got your copy of God's word open, just run your finger up to verse three. There Paul says to Timothy, stay in Ephesus. That's part of the command, stay in Ephesus and command those people to stop teaching false doctrine. Here he says, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. What is the command? It's stay in Ephesus and command others not to teach false doctrine. Interestingly, the word command uh, is played over and over in this little book, a relatively short letter. There are four references to command just in chapter one. They're on the screen. Paul opens his letter to Timothy describing himself as writing by the command of God. In other words, uh, Paul's saying, I've been given a command and now I'm giving you a command. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, in obedience to God. This is a part of Paul's fighting the good fight, fighting the battle well. He's fulfilling his calling. He's doing the work he's supposed to be doing, encouraging Timothy, spurring him on. Then Paul commands Timothy, stay there in Ephesus, command those false teachers to stop teaching false doctrine. Then he notes the goal of this command, the goal to stay and tell others to stop teaching false doctrine, the goal is love. Talked a little bit about this last week. The goal of right doctrine is is love. The goal of orthodoxy, right doctrine, is orthopraxy, right practice. Good doctrine produces good behavior. And the behavior here is love, love for others, love for God, love for one another. And then he closes by telling Timothy the command he received from Paul is in keeping with the prophecies once made about him. What in the world does that mean? How does prophecy work? When were the prophecies given? Who spoke those prophecies? What about recalling those prophecies is actually going to help Timothy to fight well? Just in doing a little bit of digging, doesn't take much digging, you quickly learn that there was a special moment in Timothy's life, what could be described as a prophetic moment. It was a moment in which uh, the elders of the church of Ephesus gathered around Timothy. They laid their hands on him. They prayed over him, commissioning him to be the pastor of the church. It was during this gathering, this special moment, this prophetic moment, that they said something. That's what a prophecy is. It's to say something. It's declarative. You can, uh, you can prophesy, thus saith the Lord, which is uh, 
forth telling. It's to tell the truth. Uh, it's part of what pulpit ministry is. It's a prophetic ministry of truth telling. But it could also be foretelling, telling Timothy where he's to go, what he's to be about. It's a prophetic moment. The elders are participating in this. There was also the transmission, apparently, of a gift or gifts in that moment. Just a little bit of digging, you get a picture of what this looks like. It's described later in the same book, chapter 4. Those verses are on the screen. Until I come to you, Paul's writing, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's what we're doing 21 centuries later. To preaching and to teaching, still doing that. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. You get in the picture? Special moment, a prophetic moment. The elders of the church gathered around Timothy, praying for him, speaking over him what they sense God is telling them about this young man and in his role in redemptive history, the gifts he's to have, exercise. Paul explains that the command he's giving him, stay in Ephesus and command others not to teach false doctrine, is in keeping with the prophecies. So now Timothy's remembering that special moment. And by recalling it, Paul says recalling it, remembering it, is going to help him fight. It's going to help him stand. It's going to help him uh, maintain his liberties and fight for the liberties of others. And here's the good news. In fact, this should bring us quite a bit of comfort. Paul wasn't commanding Timothy to do anything that God hadn't empowered him to do. Same is true for us. He's saying, stay in Ephesus, stand down false teachers, and oh, by the way, remember this is a part of your calling and your gifting. Paul's not telling Timothy to do anything that God hasn't actually empowered him to do. And that's true for us today. He's not calling us to do anything. He won't also empower us to do. And lest we think this type of special moment, this prophetic moment, this moment where other elders gather around to commission folks and they sense what God's saying about someone's life and then they lay their hands on them and pray about it, lest we think that was only a first century experience, this church has been a part of that before. My life has been impacted in that way. The year was 20, 000, uh, 2004, 2004. The elders of the church gathered around me, laid hands on me, prayed for me as the soon-to-be senior pastor, commissioning me, speaking into my life, blessing me to lead, asking God to gift me. And of course, I am in no way comparing myself to Timothy or us to the church in Ephesus. But what I am wanting us to draw from this is the Holy Spirit still at work. The same Spirit, in fact, that raised Christ from the dead, commanding Paul to write, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, I, Paul, write you under the command of God, right? That same Spirit by which Paul commands Timothy, stay in Ephesus and stand down false teachers, is the same Spirit that's at work in the church today commissioning, gifting, empowering, such that if Timothy waffled, 
I wonder if Timothy waffled. If he was ever unsure about what it meant to endure and persevere in ministry. And I think we could probably assume that he waffled at points. He questioned his calling, his ability. If that ever happened, and remember, Ephesus wasn't an easy place to do ministry. Last week, if you haven't heard it, go back and listen. It's online. Ephesus was a place of rampant materialism, occult practices that were recognized throughout the Mediterranean world, and sexual immorality that was fueled by the the worship of the uh, fertility goddess Artemis. Not an easy place to do ministry. I wonder if Timothy ever waffled on, gosh, I don't know if we can grow a church in this town. I, I don't know if I'm the guy to do it. I wonder if he ever doubted his gifts. If he ever doubted his gifts, feeling at times he wasn't sure what to do. Maybe he's too young for this role. It's interesting. In chapter 4 of this book, Paul says to him, let no one look down upon your youth. I wonder if Timothy waffled feeling too young ill-equipped, or if he suffered physically, maybe feeling weak, a chronic illness. In fact, we know that he did. Paul writes in chapter 5 about his stomach issues. I wonder if he had stomach issues from anxiety. If any of these took place, and we know that some of them certainly took place in Timothy's life, Paul wanted him to draw strength by recalling the prophecies, the commissioning, the gifting that he had received through that commissioning so that he could carry out his work in redemptive history, so that he could fight the battle well, holding on to the faith and preserving his conscience, as well as helping preserve the conscience of those that he shepherded. And I know that few of us have a moment in which we were commissioned as Pastor Timothy was commissioned with the laying on of hands and the impartation of gifts by the elders. I, I don't even have that moment. I, the ga- elders certainly gathered around me. They prayed for me. Uh, but I don't remember the earth shaking or lightning bolts striking. That's okay, though. Because few of us have Pastor Timothy's responsibilities. Establishing the church in the first century with false teachers coming out of the woodwork. Yet, and here's the point, all who are trusting in Jesus for salvation are in fact similarly commissioned and gifted by the Spirit to accomplish everything God is calling us to do. I'll say it again. We may not have the commissioning experience or the gifting that Pastor Timothy had. That's okay, because we don't have the calling that Pastor Timothy had. There's only one Pastor Timothy. But everybody in this room, well, everybody in or outside this room, who's trusting in Christ has been commissioned and gifted for ministry. We summarize that commissioning around here as helping people follow Jesus. We all have a calling into that. Jesus, right before his ascension, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. 
That's known as the Great Commission. Go, make disciples. We truncate it by saying, helping people follow Jesus. That's our mission. A disciple is a follower. And while very few of us are called to vocational ministry, all who are trusting in Christ have been given a ministry. We're to help our friends follow Jesus. We're to help our family members follow Jesus. We're to help our neighbors follow Jesus. We're to help our coworkers follow Jesus. If you're married, you're to help your spouse follow Jesus. If you're a parent, you're to help your kiddos. If you're a grandparent, aunt, uncle, if you've got cousins, you're to help them follow Jesus. You've been commissioned. You've been sent out. And the good news is you've not been called to do anything God hasn't gifted you to do. He's empowered you to make disciples. Just as he empowered Timothy to fulfill the command Paul had given him, just as he empowered Paul to uh, accomplish the mission of planting churches all over the Mediterranean world, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in us this morning. So whatever was on your plate last week and however you did it that, the Spirit is with you this week, for sure, empowering you for whatever you have on your plate. To exercise influence. Make no mistake, each of us has a calling on our lives to help others follow Jesus. And while our leadership role may not be as publicly weighty as Pastor Timothy's, it is no less important to those we're called to influence. You and I, we are vital to the disciple-making effort. There are people waiting on us out there to hear about Jesus or to be encouraged to keep following after Jesus. I said to my oldest this week, uh, Andrew, he's 26. Uh, it's been a while since he's been in and around the church. He's uh, grown and leading his own life. He was in town this week and interacting with one of his cousins. His cousins are much younger than he is. Uh, his cousin Colton is 10. And when you watch Colton watch Andrew, you would think that Colton's watching Jesus. Like any minute, G Andrew's going to walk on water. Right? The 10-year-old watching the 26-year-old football coach. Right? That's what we have going on. And there's a part of it that's just beautiful. It's as it should be. That we should exercise influence in one another's life. And I said to Andrew, Andrew, you should sit Colton down. And you should tell him in no uncertain terms, Colton, I'm following Jesus. And I want you to follow Jesus. Do you know how far that would go in a 10-year-old's life? It matters. Colton's paying attention to every little aspect of what Andrew does. We're called to exercise influence in each other's lives, to bless each other. And we've been gifted to get that done wherever we are, whomever we're rubbing elbows with. It's not simply that we've been commissioned. We've also been gifted. We've been empowered by the Spirit to accomplish the work we've been given. The Apostle Peter writes in his second letter, 2 Peter, Chapter 1, verse 3, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. 
What did you face last week that overwhelmed you? Maybe you maintained a good conscience. Maybe you fought the battle well. Maybe you didn't. Looking back just a week or a month, you had everything you need to fight a good fight there. Looking ahead in, a, in the next week, the next month, nothing's going to come your way that God hasn't equipped you to address, to endure, to persevere. You've been given everything you need to enjoy the liberties that Christ has secured for you. Let me say that again. You've been given everything you need to enjoy the liberties that Christ has secured for you. Just as Timothy was given gifts in his role as pastor, Paul's really clear when he writes to the church in Corinth that God has gifted us. He writes, now about the gifts of the Spirit, and there are many, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them all. The same Spirit. Folks, the Spirit that empowered Timothy is the same one who's given you gifts this morning if you're trusting in Jesus. To each one, a manifestation, an outworking of the Spirit is given for the good of the person sitting next to you, for the good of the person with, uh, upon whom you're exercising influence at, in your neighborhood or at work. So each of us who are trusting in Christ has a commission, a calling, and a gifting. And by recalling that moment. In other words, we each have a special moment to recall. So July 4th parade, we're out there recalling that special moment when the Declaration of Independence was signed and we said we're no longer going to be controlled by the queen and the king. No, we're going to, we're going to separate. We're going to enjoy our own liberties. We're going to secure our freedoms, the pursuit of happiness. Right, so July 4th, I go to the parade, celebrate those freedoms, now 247 years old. And by recalling that special moment, maybe you can't remember your new birth in Christ. I can remember mine. I was five years old. It's vivid still to me. Outside a little church in Texas, kneeling down on a hot summer evening, was the pastor in front of me, talking to me at my level, helping me understand the gospel and its personal realities for me. But maybe you can't remember when you started trusting in Christ. But if you're trusting in Christ, you've had a special moment. You've had a prophetic moment, I'll be honest with you. You've had a, a moment where the book of Joel talked about, and the book of Acts restated. It's that moment when the Spirit comes upon all people because of the work of Christ, where the Spirit is shed abroad and, and comes into our lives because we're trusting in the Savior. You've had that special moment. It means you have a commissioning and you have a gifting. How do you do it recalling? If you want to fight the good fight this week, if you want to fight the battle better this week, then we need to get in the habit of recalling. That's what Paul says to Timothy. So I'm giving you a command in keeping with the prophecies so that by them you might recall your commissioning, your gifting, 
and fight the battle well. How do we do it recalling? Recalling is an important part of preserving our freedoms nationally. It's an essential part of enjoying the liberties that Christ has given us. I'll share with you just one exercise of my habit of recalling. In my phone is a note, it's called my daily charge. And so I'll open my phone, usually in the morning, sometimes before I get out of bed. Shame on me, my phone's the first thing I reach for. But I'll flip to this note, my daily charge. It's on the screen. It's pretty straightforward. It's not brain surgery, but it's my effort at recalling my commissioning, my gifting, the role I'm to play. And there's nothing unique to this calling about being a pastor. This is fairly generic. Anybody trusting in Christ? These are true for anybody trusting in Christ. And then I didn't have the room, but under each of these headings is scripture that buttresses it. So the first is simply God's creator and sustainer of all things. Genesis 1.1, Colossians 1.17. By him and for him and through him are all things made. And so it starts there. My purpose is found in him, not in me. Did you know that? God is love and he has shown his love for me in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. I should actually write there and I tweak this almost daily. God is love and has shown his love most clearly. God's shown his love for us in a lot of ways. But he's shown it most clearly for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for me is personal, powerful, and unchanging. Now there's a narrative we need to rehearse. It's Romans 8. There's nothing I can do that'll separate me from the love of God. Do you know that? Nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. He loves us perfectly in Christ and nothing can separate us from his love. God has saved me from uh, my sin by his grace through faith in Jesus, Ephesians 2. God has given me his spirit as a gift through faith in Jesus and by the spirit's presence in my life, he sealed me for redemption. His spirit's guaranteeing my redemption. I'm not guaranteeing it and he's empowered me to live a godly life. God has saved me for doing good works. I'm saved from sin for good works, Ephesians 2.10. The chief of which is to love him and other people. That's the chief good work. God's son Jesus is now preparing a place for me to be with him in heaven. And he'll soon return to take me there, along with all those who are trusting in him to spend eternity with God there together. God has provided armor for me to wear while I wait. I'm not left naked in this world and vulnerable. I'm actually equipped to wait in liberty. He's given me armor to wear through which the Spirit enables me to fight the devil's schemes. God has given me hope in all situations He'll never leave me or forsake me. How do you do it recalling? Maybe this week you feel like a casualty. Maybe you, you became entangled in sin last week. You're not enjoying the liberties that are yours in Christ. The opportunity to stand up straight and to live without shame or guilt. When we actively recall all that he's done for us, we are enabled to fight the battle well. And apart from that activity of recalling, I'll go so far as to say you will most certainly suffer some loss. Those who don't actively work at recalling all that Christ has done for us and given to us and the gifts he's imparted to us, they are more apt to suffer loss. 
The activity of recalling enables us to fight well and enjoy our liberties. There are two named in today's passage that did not actively recall and fought poorly. We'll talk more in the podcast about what it means that Paul handed them over to Satan, Hymenaeus and Alexander. How do you do it? Recalling. It's essential activity of enjoying our liberties. I'll close with this. It's on the screen. But you, man and woman of God, flee from all this. He just gave a list of sinful activities. Flee from the sinful activities and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Pursue them. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Would you bow your head with me? Father, I want to pray that you would teach us to fight better. That we would suffer fewer losses and enjoy more liberties as citizens of heaven. I pray for increased freedom for the people of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing. It's a battle activity, singing is. Sing. Uh, to fight the good fight well. Bob and Maggie Thomas are down front. They'd love to pray with you. If you'd like prayer, come on down.